Amen. Thank you, guys. Indeed, our God is greater still. And church family, we live in a day and age where that idea that our God is greater is challenged everywhere. Uh, we live in a society that is inundated and built on idolatry. Uh, we live in a society that's part of a world uh, where all forms of idolatry are still present. There is still very much in the majority world idolatry where sacrifices and, and, and literal bowing down are made to handcrafted idols. Uh, here in the West, because we think we're more sophisticated and less superstitious than that, we've just removed the handcrafted idols to bow down to, and instead we bow down to fame and power and prestige, honor, sports, career, family. The reality is idolatry is everywhere, and, and you and I uh, find ourselves following a God who says very clearly, have no other idols. So how do we do that? How do we walk with God in an idol-filled society and, and really live a life faithfully apart from idols? And understand, idolatry is at the heart of the text we're going to look at for the next several weeks. And so I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17. And as we do this this morning, <coughs> I need you to uh, go with me here for a second. There, there are always, as we come to the text, we want to understand the context. We want to make sure we understand where this text falls so that we don't maybe misapply or, or misinterpret, and, and that's one end of context. The other end is understanding the context helps us see and, and really the text come alive because we understand what's going on, and there's two important aspects of context as we come to 1 Kings 17, especially since we're jumping in in the middle. There's two important aspects contextually. One, the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings. If you were here uh, Wednesday night at Bible study, we talked uh, originally one book. We split them up first and second for uh, organization purposes, but one book. Who's it written to? Well, the book of Kings most likely is written to the Jews of the southern kingdom, we looked at Habakkuk the last several weeks. We saw the, the sinfulness and idolatry of the southern kingdom, and we saw God call them and calling them to repentance. And this book is going to be written to them to expose and address their idolatry and, and add a, uh, a call to return back to faithfulness to God. So you need to understand who it's written to. At the same time, because the book of Kings is a, is a work of history, there is a context in the narrative. And we need to know that context. So actually, if you're there at 17, just look a couple verses ahead at chapter 16, verse 29. It says, Now Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa king of Judah. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned in Israel in Samar over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now, let me explain a couple things there. Uh, it speaks about Israel and Judah. Well, what's happened? Well, after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel, one kingdom splits in two. And the northern kingdom made up of, the t of 10 of the tribes is from that point forward known as Israel or Ephraim. And so it says Ahab came to the throne. It's not over the united kingdom like Saul, David, and Solomon, but is over the divided kingdom, that northern kingdom of Israel. And he reigns 22 years, the son of Omri. Now you need to understand, Omri's not given a lot of attention, but what Omri's going to do, Omri is going to come in, there's going to be a battle for a few years, and 
Omri will ultimately, through violence, take out the current ruler of Israel. He will consolidate power for himself, and in a shrewd move, he will move the capital of the northern kingdom to a place of neutrality, and that place is what we call Samaria. So, Omri fights the battles. He wins the new capital, passes it off to his son, Ahab, who's going to reign for 22 years. But look what it says about Ahab. Verse 30, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who came before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial or meaningless or not a big thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went to serve Baal and worshiped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And in his days, Heel the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of uh, Abiram, his firstborn. He set up its gates with the loss of his, uh, the loss of his youngest, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, let me explain what, what we just read in here. It says, Ahab did more evil than any king prior to him. And in order for us to understand that, it says that it was as if committing the sins of Jeroboam was no big deal. Well, who's Jeroboam? Well, Jeroboam, when, when Solomon's son Rehoboam is going to come to the king, come to, the, uh, to, to be king, this takes us back when the kingdom divides. Jeroboam, in short, rises up. He gets 10 of the tribes to reject the Davidic king and rightful king of the land, and they go and create the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's just some of his sins. He leads the ten tribes in revolt. He builds temples in Dan and Bethel where they made golden calves, yet again, to represent God's image. He sets up high places of inappropriate worship. He appoints non-Levite priests. He moves worship that's meant to be in the temple in Jerusalem to a new place, and in fact, part of the reason for moving and changing the structure of worship from Jerusalem is because he fears if any of the ten tribes go back to Jerusalem, they're going to be convicted by God and return to where they're supposed to be. Jeroboam leads the people in wickedness, and it says that the kind of wickedness Jeroboam leads the people in, it is nothing compared to what Ahab would bring. Ahab's going to marry not just a foreigner outside of the covenant, he's going to marry Jezebel, who is the daughter of the king of Sidon. Sidon would be modern-day Lebanon, just north of the kingdom of Israel. And She's not just the daughter of a foreigner, she is the daughter of a king who is a priest of a false god. And what we'll know from Jezebel is if Ahab is bad, Jezebel's worse. And Jezebel's the driving force behind much of Ahab's wickedness. We, she seeks to, if Ahab seeks to allow Baal and some kind of distorted worship of God, Jezebel wants to eliminate, even if it's distorted worship, all worship that's not to Baal. Her father, by the way, Ethbaal, his name means Baal is alive. She's the daughter of the one whose name means Baal is alive and who had ruled for 32 years. And 
He marries her. Not only this, but he worships Baal. He builds an altar for Baal and a temple of Baal that he builds in the capital city. Asherah, Baal's cohort and uh, consort and wife, uh, he erects poles of worship to her. Not only that, but then the, the random, what seems random, the note in 34 about Jericho, if you'll Remember back when Joshua and the people of Israel come into the promised land and God delivers Jericho into their hands. When it falls, God, through Joshua, lays a curse on the ruins. And he says that anyone who tries to rebuild the ruins, they will be cursed, they will fail, and it will be the loss of their, their firstborn children. And so here you see in the days, he comes, he tries to rebuild the foundations, but the emphasis by that little statement, in his days, means that Ahab is ultimately the one behind it, funding it, and pushing for it. All of this is designed to tell us as the reader that when Ahab comes to the throne, though society would experience a level of prosperity and trade, though politically there is great stability, though militarily there is great peace and security, the land of Israel under Ahab was a land living in complete and total rejection of the Word of God in the service of Baal. Now, we'll see more as Baal comes on, but let's, let's look here in 17. So, in this place where you've got a wicked king with a more wicked wife who's leading the people to walk in worship of a pagan deity, look what it says out of nowhere. Now, Elijah the Tishbite who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I am standing, surely there, is, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So out of nowhere in the midst of this wickedness, as the people are, are walking in, in idolatry, out of nowhere, a man by the name of Elijah whose name means, my God is Yahweh, my God is the Lord. A man named Elijah comes out of nowhere, quite literally nowhere, because even to this day, we don't fully know where the city of Tishbe is. He's of the setters of Gilead, meaning he did likely did not come from, from high up in stock. Essentially, Elijah comes out of nowhere. He's a nobody from nowhere who arrives on the scene abruptly. And he comes and he stands before the king and he says, King, understand, as the Lord, God, as the Lord lives, and I stand before him as one in attendance, as I stand as his servant, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my words. And you say, well, what is that? He, he stands, Elijah the prophet stands before the king with a message. That message is a word of indictment. It goes back to Deuteronomy and the covenant God forms with the people of Israel. And one of the punishments, God says, if you begin to walk in idolatry, if you begin to leave following me, one of the things, Deuteronomy 11, drought will come. And it's a sign of, of my discipline, of my judgment upon your idolatry. And we know from James that this wasn't just a pronouncement, but the book of James speaks about Elijah as a man of prayer, which describes Elijah daily praying, praying the will of God that God would shut the heavens up and he would prohibit the dew from coming out and lead into a period of drought. So the word of the Lord after saying this came to Elijah saying, go away from here, turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook as I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So Elijah went and he did according to the word of the Lord. 
For he went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening. He would drink from the brook. So here's what God says. He says, Elijah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get up. So you're here in Samaria. Uh, here's the Jordan River. I want you to go just east of the Jordan River to, to this brook, to this stream. And I want you to hide yourself there. And as you're hiding there in the wilderness, in isolation alone, I'm going to provide for your basic sustenance. I'm going to use ravens to bring you food. And really process with me for a second, by the way, church family, how absolutely absurd this sounds when you really think about it. And maybe not absurd, just flat out gross. Hey, Elijah, there's the whole world we can hide you in. But I want you to go just east of the river into the wilderness in a place that's inhospitable, that's not comfortable, which as we'll see in a second, will fill the effects of this drought. Let me put it this way. I want you, church family, right now to leave your home, leave the comfort of your air conditioning, and I want you to go further south in Texas and live in this weather. Yeah, no. Oh, and by the way, when you go there, you got to live outside in the sticker burrs and all those nasty birds on the power lines that just disgust you and poo on your car, they're going to be my means of bringing you your food for daily provision. Yet, what does it say about Elijah? He went and did. He received, he accepted, this is where he goes, and God says, I've commanded it this way, and God provides supernaturally, but look what happens, verse 7. It happened after a while. Why after a while? Because there's no rain or dew, that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And it's an interesting little statement, because process for Elijah, God says, here I am taking you to hide you. I'm going to protect you. Because as we'll learn next week in chapter 18, Elijah is now the single most hunted man in the land. He is the top of Israel's FBI's most wanted list. In fact, Obadiah will say in chapter 18, looking at Elijah, that, that Ahab has sent people into every part of the world looking for Elijah. But Elijah being hidden is not just for his protection, it's also an indictment on the people of Israel. Elijah as, God, Elijah as God's prophet represents God officially. For God to remove Elijah from the people and hide him is a sign that God's word is no longer with the people. Instead, in their idolatry, they are not hearing. And so he takes them to a brook. Here's God's special provision. But even though God is providing for Elijah, Elijah still undergoes the reality of hardships of God's judgment upon the land. The brook dries up. And if you think that was crazy to send him to the middle of nowhere in the middle of the worst heat wave that Israel's ever seen. By the way, just so you know, uh, modern day Jerusalem's on about the same line of latitude as Dallas-Fort Worth. So truly, think about the weather right now. Put yourself in the shoes, it's pretty applicable. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So Elijah arose, he went up to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, there was a widow who was gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, uh, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. 
But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in a bowl and a little oil in a jar. And look, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go do as you said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterwards you make one, may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends race, uh, a rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Now, if you think going out to the, to the brook and being fed by ravens is nuts, now God says, hey, Elijah, the brook's dried up. I want you to go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. And again, if we gloss over that, we'll go, what's the big deal? Well, Zarephath is a city smack in between Sidon to the north entire to the south. It is literally going to the heart of Balesville in Pagantown. And I pulled that from somebody else, by the way, it was very creative, but you understand the point. God has literally said to Elijah, hey, Elijah, I know you're the most hunted man in the world, and it's because you're taking a stand for me, speaking my word as the people are worshiping Baal. I want you to go to the city that is in the heart of the people who brought Baal worship to Israel. I want you to go to the heart of Baal country. I want you to go to a place where you, where you will certainly find no friends. And by the way, when you go there, I'm, you're gonna meet a widow. And in a neat interaction of God's providence and man's will, you watch, God says, I've, I've commanded, I've appointed this widow to provide for you, but the widow obviously just shows up in there. And so it's a sweet way we watch God work Here's this widow, this widow who, by the way, would be destitute, poor, would be the most unlikely source of provision. She would have a hard time providing for Elijah in times of rain and dew, much less times of drought. And sure enough, when Elijah shows up and you see the interaction with them, she's getting ready to make one last meal and then know that she and her son are going to die. She is hopeless. And she recognizes the predicament in an interesting statement. Obviously, she didn't say the Lord my God, the Lord your God, because I don't have anything. But here's what's also interesting about the widow. Everything Elijah tells her to do, she goes and does. And understand how absurd that is. You got a little flour in this face and a little oil in this face? You trust my word, every morning it'll be there. There won't be enough there every morning to bake it out for the next month, but every morning there will be what you, we need for that day. And she obeys. She trusts the word. But then look at this. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So every morning she gets up. Every morning she goes to the cupboard. Every morning she sees the gracious provision of God. And this morning would be no different. But this morning she has a son who's sick. And this morning he breathes out his last and dies. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? Why, why, why is your attention on me? Why have you brought God's focus here? 
Have you come to bring my iniquity to remembrance and put my son to death? There is a statement of accusation of grief. And so Elijah says to her, give me your son. Then he took her son from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living, and he laid the boy on the bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. Now catch what's going on here. The child's dead. There's emotion. There's there's sorrow, there's grief. You can picture that widow, the the most precious person in her world, and by the way, the only hope for her future, for her son to grow up and to take care of her, clutching him close to her heart, clutching him to her chest in agony. Elijah says, let me see that boy, and he takes the boy up, he lays the boy, and he cries out, Elijah already is fully aware that the whole area of that portion of the world is suffering because of the word that he has stood and proclaimed in in righteousness and faithfulness for the Lord. And he cries out now, now this too, and he cries for the sun to be risen. And for you and I, church family, we go, oh, well, maybe we kind of missed the aspect of his prayer, but let me put you back in context there. Prior to this in Scripture, there is no recording of any person who's died ever coming back to life. So understand the level of, of, of Elijah's understanding of God and willingness to go before God in faith because this is not something that had happened. So he cries out, bring him back, Lord. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. The life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Here is a woman who in abject anguish meets a stranger one day. He tells her something crazy, but she trusts the word and she follows. We don't know how long goes by, but at one point her worst and darkest nightmare and and fear came true as her sweet and precious boy breathed his last and in anguish. Even in her anguish and sorrow and even animosity and accusation, when Elijah says, let me see his body, she hands the body over. God works a miracle. God shows himself not just going back to the beginning of the chapter, not just to be the God who is alive, but the God who also gives life, the author of life, the giver of life, the restorer of life. And he breathes life back into the boy. And you can imagine Elijah coming down with that boy in his hands, holding it awake, alert, the joy. And, and the woman makes a confession Whereas Ahab and the people of Israel thus far have said, oh, you trouble of Israel, shut your mouth. She has said, now I know you are a prophet of the Most High God, and the words you speak is true, meaning you speak his words. There is a confession of faith. In the most unlikely of places, the heart of pagan worship, in the most unlikely of of times, in the most unlikely of people, in the midst of what we will see in the coming weeks is this grand cosmic display and battle about who really is God. Here we find God's eye, God's work on a lowly and poor widow and her boy in the midst of a land that doesn't honor him. 
Now, I mentioned Baal earlier. It's interesting. Do you notice you would expect her to be a worshiper of Baal? Baal was the land of the God of that land. And Baal, by the way, uh, it's important to understand, Baal was the God of the storm, the prince of the earth. He specifically is pictured as riding on the clouds, specifically what he would do in response to the worship of the people was send rain and provide dew for crops. Because when you remove those, the crops are going to fail, and when the crops are going to fail, the animals are going to die. When the animals are going to die, food's going to become scarce, and back then your wealth decreased. But it's interesting, you don't see her worshiping Baal. You don't hear any news of throwing idols out from the house. And it leads you to wonder if, because she's already faced hardship and sorrow, she's a widow, had she begun to realize, I, I don't know what is true, but I, this Baal's not working. But then the people of God who have the Word of God and the works of God and the prophets of God who reject God, here we find one in the most unlikely of places responding to God because here's what God also does. It was believed that if drought occurred, it was because Baal had locked into a battle with another god by the name of Mot, the god of death. And if Mot triumphed over Baal, then Baal would have to submit to, God, to, to Mot for a period of time before another god came and freed Baal. And so there's a question, can the one true God, the living God, can he cross borders? Can he cross the border of his land into Baal's land? Yes. Not only that, there is a border, the border of death that not even Baal can cross. Can God cross that border? Yes because He is the living God. Go back to the beginning of the chapter, church family, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. Church family, understand today, we live in a world that has all sorts of bales. We live in a world that in, in, in every way shouts all sorts of different things, but understand and be clear today, church family, the Lord God lives. He is the living Lord, and if you and I are going to seek to stand and respond to who He is and live in a, in a world of idolatry uh, righteously, then we're going to have to know and understand that the Lord God lives, and all that that means. The Lord God lives. We see the living Lord. He speaks to His righteous ones. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. We see God speaking to Elijah. God speaks, and notice His speech. His speech means God is not distant, removed from what's going on. He's very present. He's not unaware of what's going on, but He's keenly aware. He's not inactive with what's going on. He's extremely active because He's speaking. And when God speaks, He doesn't speak in vague platitudes. He speaks clearly and directly. And when he speaks, he calls people to himself because understand, church family, God doesn't leave room for vagueness. God has spoken clearly. In our world of idolatry, God does not vaguely address idols. Instead, He exposes and calls every one of them out. And He says to you and I who've been saved by grace through faith, if in fact we've responded to Christ, He says to us that He and He alone is God worthy of our worship and no idol may be bowed down to. 
You see, Baal worship was syncretistic. You could worship Baal and other gods. You know why it was syncretistic? Because Baal's a lifeless God who can't speak and is therefore can't stand up for his own exclusivity. But God is the living God. He is the only God, and He speaks clearly. He addresses things rightly. He's the living God, he provi- which means He provides for His righteous ones. Do you see that in the passage? Here's Elijah. Who's going to take care of Elijah? He's the most hunted man on the run. Yet God provides water, meat, bread, housing. He does it in the most unclean and unlikely of places, in the most even hostile of places. God provides for His people who follow Him in the midst of idolatry. Now, let's be clear. When we say that God provides, sometimes we can jump to various things and say, oh, God provides, so that means, uh, that means my 4,000-square-foot house, God will provide. That means my uh, two Lamborghinis, God will provide. No. It doesn't say God provides whatever we want. It says that God provides what we need, and not just what we need, what we need for His purpose in our life. Elijah's not the only one in Israel who's following the Lord. We'll see in the next chapter there, were, uh, there was a group of prophets that were hidden. We'll see that there are, uh, in a chapter after that, 7,000 others following the Lord. But their provision, the way God provides for them, is not the same way that God provides for Elijah. Because God has a, a certain purpose and a plan for Elijah's life. This week is Vacation Bible School. And at the heart of the theme of this week in Vacation Bible School, Spark, the the theme verse is Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works planned beforehand for us. Church family, understand part of the heart of what we're teaching children in Vacation Bible School this week, but applies to every one of us, whether you're zero or whether you're 99. And don't think you're exempt if you're 100. I just don't know if there's anyone in here, and I said 99. God has a specific plan and purpose to use our lives this side of heaven. And what God provides faithfully for is the execution of that plan for our lives, not the plan we come up for and try to strong arm Him into. And maybe you say, well, that's great. God provides. I mean, it's like Jesus says, do not worry. God knows you need food, clothing, and shelter. Matthew chapter 6. This means on a practical level, the timing of life events, the community we have or don't have, jobs, honors, whatever you want to go through. God knows how to provide for what his purpose is in our life. And maybe you go, but Wes, I'm not one of those special ones like Elijah. Okay, well, let's back up for a second. Elijah's special because we're so far removed. We, you know, Elijah's one of the two greatest figures of the Old Testament. But you notice the passage? The passage doesn't introduce the great Elijah of the house of such and such with training such and such. It introduces him in this way. Elijah, a nobody from nowhere. But Elijah's not the only one God provides for. God provides for a widow who initially doesn't even know him or honor him as God. And her boy, both of whom remained unnamed in the midst of a land that doesn't honor God. Let's be clear today. God's provision, His protection, His preparation in our lives is for His purpose and plan. And there is no one on this earth that God does not have a purpose and plan for. And our God is a God who delights to take nobodies and use them. In fact, God is really clear. He will actively oppose the somebodies because He gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. 
So, Pastor, I, I'm not something special. Oh, that's the enemy talking. To the child sitting in this room at five, to the student sitting in this room in the middle of their teenage years, to the young adult, to the median adult, to the married adult, to the single adult, to the elderly adult, to the senior adult, to whatever other person is in the room, God has a purpose and a plan that he will provide because he is the living God. Because he's the living Lord, he's faithful to his words. You notice the repetition? I have commanded the ravens. I have commanded, I have commanded the widow. The word of the Lord came and said, by the Lord's word, it will not rain. God is faithful to his word. And this is critical. This is critical, church family. God makes all sorts of promises in his word. He makes promises about fulfillment in him. He makes promises about life in him. He makes promises about what he honors, what he doesn't honor. And because God is a living God, he is faithful to every one of his words. Because God is a living God, he takes seriously every one of his commands because they are a reflection of his very nature and character. Because if God was a non-living God, we can say Bell says whatever he wants, but Bell, because he's lifeless, has no power to do what we think he promises. Whatever idols we carry in our life, the reality is those idols don't really make promises because they're dead. They can't talk. The reality is we believe lies and we think those things promise us. That idol of success, that idol of working up the corporate ladder, that idol of having social admiration, that idol of community, that, that, that idol of power, that I, whatever the idol is in our life, Whatever big or small, whatever the idol is, we have deemed that it has promised us something and it can never faithfully fulfill that. But the living God fulfills and is faithful to every word that he says. The living Lord seeks the salvation of the nations. At the heart of this text, church family, is the idea of borders. In ancient times, gods were believed to be constrained by their by the borders of the people who claimed them as their God. Yet God doesn't even bat an eye and marches into to Baal's land, takes somebody that nobody's paying attention to, and performs a miracle the likes of which the world had never seen before. And when Jesus in Luke chapter 4 enters into his hometown and begins to teach, he makes the statement in Luke 4 to all of those who are listening, and he says, in the days of Elijah, there were plenty of widows in Israel, but God didn't send Elijah to any one of them. And they, the Jews around him fly into a rage. Why? Because they understood what Jesus was saying. In the midst of a time when God's people completely and totally turned their back on God, when God's judgment was falling on the land, God sought and saved someone from the nations. Why? Because our God is a God who desires to seek and save men and women, boys and girls from every tongue and tribe. Because the nations are made in the image of God and God's heart is to seek to save. His goodness is such that he sees any individual whose heart is seeking to respond. He is a God who leaves the 99 to go after the one. His greatness is such that he can save the one who is in the midst of the most dark land 
And his power in, in life is such that it doesn't matter how dark the land seems, he is the living God. Amen. And so church family, we must not cave to idolatry. We must not cave to idolatry. All idols fail. They're lifeless. They're void. They can't provide what they promise. They can't cross borders. And you may say today, well, Wes, that idea of borders, that doesn't apply to us. Today. Oh, absolutely it does, church family. We have borders. They're just not geopolitical. Let me tell you the borders of our idols. God, I, I, believe, I believe your word as much as it applies to my spiritual life. But your word about your grace being sufficient, your word about you being my hope, yeah, when I step over here into my school life, boundaries, it's other gods I got to bow down to. I got to bow down to, hey, I, I know what God says about this issue, but if I'm going to have a good school life where I can have fulfillment in this, I need to make sure I say the same things as my peers. Hey, God, you're, you're good in my spiritual life. I'm glad I, glad I feel really good morally. But over here in the boundaries of my business life, I'll make sure to, to, as I run my business, pull every penny I can. I'll stack my salary up, but I'll make sure to not play my employees fairly. And we can go on down the line, on down the line, on down the line. School life, personal life, social life, work life. Hey, God, we know you're true. Hey, we're parents. We know God's called us to disciple our kid. That's good for our spiritual life, but man, any chance we get to put our kid in an extracurricular in the hopes that they're going to get a, a full ride to a college scholarship, that they're going to end up being a professional at whatever it is, and they're going to make a six-figure salary, boom, we'll give in to whatever it is. Oh, church family, we bow down to idols all the time, and we play boundaries all the time. To have an idol means there is a boundary somewhere where we believe God is not living enough, God is not powerful enough, God is not good enough, God is not faithful enough to cross that boundary and to bring his word and his truth and absolutely bring his goodness, fulfillment, and pleasure in that boundary even if it is a dry and weary land we live in because of it. We must not cave to idolatry, church family, but we must also not despair because of the idolatry around us. Omni, Omri, the worst king the world had ever seen, Israel had ever seen. Jeroboam before him, the worst king Israel had ever seen. Ahab, the worst king, right? You, you imagine, sometimes we look around, we see things decaying, we see morals falling, we see, we see structures that we once thought false, call certain, and we go, oh my goodness, there's no hope. How can it get any worse? Oh, church family, it can get worse. Which means if it can get worse... He's not done yet. It means if it can get worse, he is still on the move. It means if it can get worse, it absolutely, by his grace and power, if there is a response to him, can get better. There is not, uh, we must not fall into despair and hopelessness. There is hope because our Lord is the living God. Which really simply means, Pastor, what do we do with that? It means we got to stand in the service of Elijah. Elijah says, the living God before whom I stand, in whose service. Church family, our lives, if you are in Christ, are not our own. We are bought with a price. Our life is to stand before the Lord. And by the way, it's not just our lives. Everybody's going to have to stand before the Lord. But we're going to have to stand before the Lord as those redeemed who know that our life is not our own. Our life is bought with a price in response to God being the living God. We must stand in the service and ministry of Elijah. 
to be faithful to speak what God speaks, to stand where God stands, to do what God calls us to do, to go where God calls us to go, to minister to who God calls us to minister to, whether it's to nobody in the wilderness, whether it's to a widow in the midst of pagan town, or whether it's up on a mountain where fire's gonna fall and the whole world will hear. We gotta stand in his service. We also gotta respond with the faith of the widow. Saw this definition of faith this week. What is faith? It is staking everything upon God's sheer word. It's waging all of everything upon the truthfulness and faithfulness of God. The widow doesn't start out knowing God. By the end, makes a kind of confession of faith. She stakes everything. She literally stakes her life from the moment she hears Elijah's word on the fact that his word will prove true because his word is of the Lord. Church family, if we're going to walk idle free in the midst of an idolatrous society, it's going to be because we know that our God is the living God. And it's going to be because in response to our God being the living God, we respond in this kind of faith. That even when it seems hopeless, that even when we know it's going to cost that even when sorrow's introduced and we're holding our most precious and treasured possession or person in our arms and, and, and the word of the Lord says, let me have it, we let go and we trust the Lord's word. It means when we're confronted with our own idolatry, it's interesting, the woman does say, has this happened because of my sin? She's clearly aware of sin. When we're confronted with our own idolatry, that our response is not to dig our heels into trenches and bow down even more, but it's to say, Lord, I trust you. Church family, make no mistake, today is the day of the living Lord. We better know it, and if we know it, church family, we better stand in the presence and stand in the ministry that our God has called us to, and we better respond in faith. Let's pray. Father, you are alive. Our world will say you're dead. In fact, our philosophers though I'll misquote them slightly, said it a hundred years ago. God is dead. Man has no more need of the supernatural, the divine. God, it doesn't matter what wage we say. It doesn't matter what idols we choose to bow down to. You and you alone are the living Lord. And as you are alive, as you are in our midst, as you are moving now, may we respond to who you are. It's in your name I pray.